So this retreat <clears throat> is called the equanimity retreat because equanimity is a factor that's very important for Buddhist psychology, but it often takes a while for it to develop. But it's the development of equanimity that often is the taste of our own maturity of consciousness. So it's helpful to tune into what we mean by equanimity. So we're using this English word equanimity to translate the old Pali word, upekka. And upekka is considered a high integration of heart and mind, of wisdom and perspective, along with faith and patience and courage. It's where many of our positive qualities blend well and play well together. And if any one of our good qualities becomes excessive, it'll throw us off balance. So even something good, like uh, the feeling of love or the feeling of courage, if it's not a part of um, a sense of wholeness, it actually could become so excessive that it throws us off balance. So you might have a lot of joy, and if joy is still connected to being embodied, it's great. But if joy starts to throw you off balance, even though it's a good thing, it feels good in the moment, it actually will start to trip you up to have excessive joy. Um, you can get lost in it. And most of us would probably love to get lost in excessive joy compared to other states that are more difficult. But excessive joy sometimes will uh, get you out of sync with yourself or the people around you, where you're running a lot of joy and a lot of people can't take it in because there's something excessive about it. And so the maturing of this factor of equanimity uh, helps blend in all of our positive qualities. And as our positive qualities are blended in, it's harder for us to be thrown off balance. It's also much harder for... Um, more tormenting states of anger or fear or greed or envy, competitiveness, agitation. It's harder for those states to creep into our lives when we have a well-balanced set of uh, positive qualities. And that's the role of equanimity. The role of equanimity is to uh, create a, a wide base where uh, uh, every positive aspect of our heart and our mind is uh, supporting us. One way you may think about that is to think about a choir, on a choir of maybe 50 people, and everybody has a range that they're good at singing in. Some are deep bass and some are high alto, some people in the middle. But when they all learn to harmonize, it's more powerful than any one singer could produce. So you actually want all these positive qualities to learn to work together. And then they produce something more powerful than any one of them could. And that's the role of equanimity is to keep the choir of beautiful qualities in harmony. That's one taste of equanimity. When in a particular moment you feel, yeah, I can taste the patience, I can taste the courage, I can taste the clarity of mind. I can taste that I, I do have a good perspective, but I also have this open sense of faith. So when there's a lot of equanimity, 
really you can taste all the flavors of the heart and mind that are positive. And much like a choir, every now and then certain factors of heart and mind step forward to be lead factors. And then the other factors are softer in the background. So you might have a love and courage really step forward, but they're supported by the other factors of faith and wisdom, patience. And then they, they come back into the whole and then some other qualities might step forward. So it's that harmony of beautiful factors that is the role of equanimity. And it's the role of practicing, getting to know these positive qualities so that they can actually blend well. We're studying equanimity on this retreat as a heart practice. So in the Dharma, in this Theravadan Buddhist tradition, there are a group of four heart factors that work together as a team. And you could think of this as a, a small choir of four, a quartet. And the four are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and this balanced heart, this uh, balanced truth-oriented heart of equanimity. It's really hard to describe any one of them and how powerful it can be if the others are not nearby. So you really have to understand how all four work together to see how any one quality can become more and more of a lead factor. So often the easiest factor uh, in ordinary daily life is the loving kindness or metta, a general friendliness. And that's what you might feel when you're in a, uh, a good enough mood and you're able to meet people with a light sense of cheerfulness, uh, friendliness, you can consider the people around you, consider yourself in, in the well-being of yourself and all. We call that, that general resting state, loving kindness, and the Pali word is metta. When that friendliness is streaming through life and it comes across difficult experiences, which happen to everybody. We're all on the great merry-go-round of conditionality. And not all horses go up at once and not all horses come down at once. So if we're aware of the beings around us, we can see that we're all susceptible at any point to have difficulties arise. And then we're all susceptible, susceptible to have beauties arise, like unforeseen and unexpected beauties to arise. So because of this going up and down, we have a general sense of kindness that we want to cultivate. But that kindness will come in contact with difficult experiences, personally, internally, immediately, uh, and large in larger collective circles. And now we might be experiencing something global, a kind of global stress around both climate change and now this coronavirus, there are things that, we, that you can really feel that all uh, human life right now is being challenged by something. So when this general loving kindness of metta, this general friendliness comes in contact with what's difficult, 
and it understands the impact of what's difficult, the impact of what's stressful, that loving kindness becomes compassion, where our heart begins to reverberate empathetically with the difficulties we experience. When our friendliness comes in contact with something joyful, we call that mudita, when the heart is lifted up by something clearly beautiful, clearly worth celebrating. So that celebration love, where you can feel your heart expand in love, in celebration uh, for your own joys and the joys around you. And that we call mudita. So you'll feel that uh, whenever you see um, often children uh, having a great experience or laughing uh, or excited by something. It's a very infectious joy and the heart opens and celebrates. That opening and celebrating heart we call mudita. That's the old Pali word, mudita. In English, we call it sympathetic joy. And then the fourth of these is equanimity. Equanimity, uh, it doesn't get taught very often at much depth, uh, overtly, because it takes a while to develop. And for many people, it's not the most intuitive place to be. It's not the most intuitive a heart space of how equanimity could be a warm, loving state of being. So I want to talk a little bit about equanimity and how it can be a warm heart space. And then how these four work together and keep each other really honest, keep each other in their pure form. So one thing you'll notice about compassion, general friendliness, and the celebration joy is they have a preference in them for what's good and an understanding that pain and suffering is hard, that it's uh, a misfortune, that it's something we all face and um, the heart kind of opens and uh, bleeds a little bit when we come in contact with what's difficult. And yet that preference for the good and that preference to see what's unfortunate or what's painful as, uh, as a misfortune will keep us in our reactivity towards what life serves up. And with deeper and deeper wisdom, as we become intimate with life, as we've lived long enough, and as we felt into what an actual human life is like, we see that there is this up and down motion there are ups into pleasures and celebrations and good fortunes. There are, are passages into uh, uh, states that are very difficult experiences where we lose loved ones, we experience pain, we experience loss. Um, we can feel it personally, we can feel it on a larger scale. After a while of going up and down, if our hearts mature, and that's what the Buddhist practices are helping us do, is to mature more quickly than having to start from scratch and figure it all out on our own. Is that to be a human and to, um, to be an open-hearted human means that we have to come into terms with the fact that there will be some pleasure, there will be some pain, and that we don't have any control over that. We can influence it at best, but we'll never get control over these conditions. 
And so we don't actually have to suffer when there's something painful. There might be a distortion in that suffering around what's painful. And there might be something too addicted or too drawn into what's positive or what's celebrating. So equanimity uh, grows over time with perspective. So I'll give one little example that might pull this together. Um, my sister had five children and my brother and I had no children. And so my sister said she had great permission to have as many children as they wanted because my brother and I weren't having children, not intentionally, but we didn't, but it was a lot of kids to have for one, uh, one parent. But I noticed that on when my first niece came, we were all attentive to her happiness and we were all alert whenever she would cry or have something distressful. I noticed my mom and my father had a lot more bandwidth for cries and joys. And they knew the difference between the cries and joys that were normal and which ones actually stood out and needed more attention. So that loving of a grandparent that's been through it before and has perspective means you don't rise on every laughter and you don't crash on every cry. When my fifth uh, niece came, when my sister had her fifth child, I happened to fly into Nashville on that day where my sister lived and I got to the hospital. And there was my sister with her newborn in her arms and she had four children at different ages sort of running around the room energetically. And she was so incredibly comfortable with a newborn. She'd already gone through four, uh, she'd had four births, um, four children. So she held this fifth child she held it with so much more security and was not uh, only looking for the good, not anxiously looking for the good. And she wasn't thrown by the cries that come along with being born. It's uncomfortable to be born. You have to start using your digestive system. There are all these loud sounds. And so newborns are shocked and they cry a little bit, but they, they kind of come to terms with life. And then they have joys, but those are temporary. And then, after a while, you don't rise and fall in every joy. You can still celebrate uh, the happiness and you can still have compassion for the suffering. But because of a lot of experience and a lot of perspective, there's a much more kind of even balance of the love. It's not an equanimity of flatness. It's not an equanimity of not caring. It's actually a very mature caring that's not thrown by reality. So there will be ups and downs. And if you have room for ups and downs, your love can stay very uh, in a very steady flow. And that's the role of equanimity. Equanimity uh, uh, is truth-oriented. Equanimity wants to have the heart that contacts the truth. In its pure form, so does compassion, loving kindness, and sympathetic joy. They also want to contact the truth but they can get off a little bit on still reacting to the negative or still being overly elated by what's positive. Equanimity develops as we have intimacy with life. We see that there are ups and downs. We see that they come and go. And we don't have to be as thrown or disoriented by those rises and falls. 
That's the strength of equanimity. That's the loving capacity of equanimity. You're not expecting a life only to have good, uh, eternal, pleasant goodness. You're not um, disoriented when life is difficult. Earlier in the day, I was listening to, um, I guess it was last night, I was listening to uh, Governor Cuomo talk about the corona pandemic and how much uh, his heart and all of our hearts were going out to those who are suffering. But after he connected there, he said, you know, if you live long enough, you realize life comes with challenges. And it's that realization that has you turn towards the challenge and expect there will be challenges. And in that moment, the difference between compassion and equanimity were not that far. You could have compassion for the fact that it was difficult and equanimity in the fact that it's not disorienting when difficult things arise. If it is disorienting, we're probably a little bit too enchanted with the dream that it could always be pleasant, that life could always be easy. And you'll notice that that happens. That still happens to me, and I'm, I'm surprised after all these years that I don't plan my day to have difficulties in it. And I try to plan my day around difficulties. And yet those plans can never control everything. So when a difficulty arises, something painful physically or something disappointing, uh, or I get bad news from people I care about, it always shocks me a little bit. And that just shows me how my conventional mind keeps trying to make pleasant things happen or pleasant things the normal or, or comfort be normal so that when something upsetting happens, I'm disoriented around it until I come to terms with it. I'm not as thrown as easily because I've been intimate enough with life that I recognize it, this happens. This too happens. This is what it means to be human. And if you want to be human, if you don't want to be human, uh, I think everybody here is human. Raise your hand if you're not human. <laughs> uh, you're going to have a great range of experiences. One of the beautiful things is, though, our human heart is strong enough for our human journey. It doesn't always feel like it's strong enough for everything that happens, but it actually has the strength within it that can be grown so that we can actually stay heart connected to a wide variety of what life offers us. So that's why we had a whole retreat on this, to have this conversation, to have this meditative exploration of what equanimity is, to talk about it so that there's a little bit of orientation, but then to come into our own heart streams and feel what parts of our lives do we have reactivity to and we struggle to accept? And what parts of our lives are we hoping for more of? Are we reaching for? Are we pulling for? Most of us prefer pleasant meditation experiences. And most of us are secretly hoping for pleasant meditation experiences. And if they don't come, we kind of check out. Like, what's the point? Why be intimate with life if it won't be pleasant? you might discover that that's an unexamined hope of yours, that somehow meditation will make all things pleasant. Or if you have a pleasant sit, you hope that's the new normal. With enough practice, you realize pleasant things do visit. 
but they don't come and stay. And what's more pleasant is to have an attitude that can roll through life intimately and not uh, suffer the inflammation and agitation over the struggle of what actual human life is like. I thought we were gonna need the equanimity retreat at this time uh, because of the political season. So when I looked on the calendar and then imagined how it was four years ago, I thought we all need to strengthen our equanimity not the ability to be flattened even, but the ability to have our heart uh, so impacted by what's happening nationally and globally on top of what's happening personally and collectively. But I had no anticipation as any of us did that we would actually be having this retreat in the middle of an unprecedented pandemic, all sheltering it place in place. And yet this is still one of the best times to have had equanimity and to have practiced it so it would be available when uh, great uncertainty happens, when great difficulties happen, so that there are strengths of heart that can meet uh, the twists and turns of life. One of the ways that we practice equanimity, and there are several that we hope to teach you, but mindfulness itself begins to orient us towards equanimity because mindfulness, what we're encouraging is not just to be mindful when there are pleasant experiences, but we try to be mindful through the stream of all experiences. You know, whether there's silence at the ear, pleasant sounds, or unpleasant sounds. We want to be able to meet that with mindfulness. So often we don't say the word equanimity when we talk about mindfulness, but the whole attitude of mindfulness is an equanimous mind, is an intimate, open heart and mind that's developing the strength to stay intimate no matter what the experience. We want to bring mindfulness into the body and an animal body doesn't only feel pleasure. An animal body will feel aches and pains. So if you want to be embodied, you have to make some room for what an actual human body experiences. We'll talk about mindfully coming into the body and mindfully coming to terms with parts that are painful, parts that might feel pleasant, parts that might feel neutral. But we, might, again, might not uh, explicitly say that's also an attitude of equanimity that when we talk about mindfulness, we're often framing mindfulness with the, necess uh, the necessity of equanimity to make it actually mindful. So we are actually mindful of our experience. So uh, all through mindfulness practice, you're practicing a kind of equanimity, intimacy with what is, with less reactivity and less judgment, less colored by preference so that you can feel actual body sensations, not just the ones you would prefer, that you can open up to a greater range of emotional states and mental states. And again, not just the ones we prefer. Open up to thoughts, concepts, open up to the world around us uh, mindfully. Mindfully, the world is like this. 
to be intimate with the world is to touch all parts of it and to see that it's a mixed a bag of some uh, heartbreaking uh, misfortunes, people who are suffering, whole communities that are suffering, but also countless joys, countless beauties to take stock in as well. That's what mindfulness would bring you in contact with. So in the morning, we're guiding you in a mindfulness exercise, a mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the breath. We'll go through uh, ways to increase mindful grounding at our sense doors, mindfully knowing our emotional states. But therein, we are also practicing equanimity. We're practicing equanimity in that we have room for, and we're not coloring with preferences, what we're mindful of. We're gonna ask you to be mindful of your sleepy states and not fight them and not reject them. See if you can actually meet them consciously. This is what a sleepy state is like. This is what a restless state is like. This is what it's like after restlessness when there's more calm in the body or the mind after sleepiness when wakefulness arises. Strong mindfulness just keeps flowing along in the middle of what's true and it doesn't get hung up on any one particular experience. It knows them very evenly because it's open to all experience. Just teaching mindfulness is actually teaching us the foundation of equanimity. And yet we're gonna draw this quality forward. We're gonna talk about it. We're gonna reflect upon it. What is healthy equanimity? What's the beauty of equanimity? There are states that if we don't look closely, will seem like equanimity, but they're not. So there are states that are, we would call them counterfeit equanimity. They're not really upeka. Upeka is an intimate state, it's a warm state, it's an accepting state. So you might find that you're very balanced, that you're not being reactive, and then slowly you become comfortable there and what's happening is you're actually shutting down and you're preserving the sense of balance by lowering how much you care. So you can slide from healthy equanimity into indifference and not notice when you cross over the line. So we actually wanna study that. We want to become sensitive to what healthy equanimity is like and when we start crossing out of equanimity into something that if we didn't look closely, we would have called equanimity. This could be a type of um, dispassion where it's not just that you're not reactive, you actually don't care anymore, or you shut down in order to keep a sense of balance and non-agitation, you turn off the world, you turn off your caring for the world. So I used to work a lot with homeless populations and mostly homeless youth. Because my heart went through some struggles around staying open to the joys and the sorrows of homeless life and what it meant for these teens and knowing the abuse that they'd gone through and then having it compounded with actual homelessness, sometimes drug addiction, and then their circle of friends also being really unstable. The problems can really pile up. I noticed when I first started working in the crisis shelter, 
or homeless teens, um, I was my I would have these strong instinctual reactions for or against parts of these kids' lives. So when I heard about how hard their lives was, I I would be infuriated that they had ever been treated that badly or this type of grief would come over me and I couldn't believe the world could be so cruel. Uh, much worse than my middle-class life growing up, what some of these kids had experienced. I noticed that the social workers and the nurses and the staff in the shelter didn't burn out as quickly as I did by having such a strong reaction to everything uh, that the kids experienced. So the ones who had their hearts open, even after years of working with homeless kids, had developed equanimity, but they were still heart available. They were balanced, their heart was available, and they understood it might take seven or eight interventions before a kid might stabilize their life. You could try seven or eight interventions and a kid may never stabilize their life. That they weren't as attached to results, so their love could be so much more even. But in the first year that I worked there, at some point I'd throw up my hands and say, I can't care if it doesn't work out. I just can't keep carrying on this level unless we're solving these problems. And so I had a chance to think about that. I had a chance to reflect upon that. And I thought, well, what good does that do? Where am I walking away to? There are still homeless kids and I'm walking away, but the nurses, the social workers, the, the police, people, uh, the police, they're willing to stay engaged. But you could tell when someone was really burning out, when they couldn't handle that much contact with suffering because they would stop caring. And there would be this uh, cynicism that would come in. There would be a flatness because they wouldn't be heart available for their work anymore. They were doggedly determined to do their work, but they no longer offered a personal connection to what they were contacting. So you could meet police, social workers, nurses, uh, staff workers, and they had just had it, but they, they were marching on. And the way that they had become uh, equanimous was really a false equanimity that was slightly cynical, not willing to start afresh, not willing to look, uh, with new eyes into what, what's happening on this day. So that burnout happens. It's a, a type of compassion fatigue when you don't have room for reality, when you don't have room for how things are actually happening and what it means to serve, what it means to serve complex people with complex lives. After a few years of doing that, I also started to develop equanimity. And I also could track my own burnout I would work very hard with a whole group of kids, get them to take their GED, establish them in some type of you know, beginning of their adulthood. They would graduate and a whole new batch of kids would come in. And I, had no, I, I was exhausted. I said, I, I can't meet you all, but I don't want to give up. And so I would just tighten and stabilize myself because I wanted to be helpful. But that second round of kids, I was not personally available to make contact with them. That's why we want to teach equanimity as a heart state, 
not just the balanced part of equanimity, but the caring equanimity that's open to reality and is not disappointed by reality. In some ways you're expecting reality, not cynically, but you've been around enough to know it's worth, it's worth it to help, it's worth it to participate. And yet I still know there will be ups and downs. Not every down is going to be a failure. Not every up is all success. There's another way that these Brahmaviharas can come together. I'll give another example. When these kids were going through their GED graduation and they thought they'd never graduate high school, they'd given up on education. We pulled together and supported them and they got into this GED graduation. The woman who was mentoring me who was running the shelter said, when you go to the graduation, don't just celebrate see what mood they're actually in. And I thought, okay, that's a little weird. Of course, we're going to celebrate. They've worked so hard. This is something to celebrate. She said, this might be more complex for them than you realize. So if you go in to celebrate, you're going to make it awkward for them. Go in and meet them where they really are and then see if celebration makes sense. And for some of the kids, when they would graduate, there would be a peak of a celebration and then it would be followed quickly by the sense they knew their parents weren't there. And they knew that that was, that was really difficult for them, that their parents weren't there. And if I had only been in the celebration mode, I wouldn't have been able to actually meet the kids on their actual journey on their GED graduation. All of us are like that. If you expect people only to be happy in happy circumstances, you don't have room for what it's actually like for them. And it's very alienating. Later on in my life, I worked on a, in a hospice shelter and a hospice ward. And it was the community hospice um, for the community hospital. And so we had a lot of homeless people who were in there uh, who had terminal illnesses. So I would walk into the hospice ward expecting to meet suffering. And yet you could walk in. And as you're walking towards the door to walk in, you're preparing yourself for people in the end of their days and the heaviness of that. But you walk in and everybody is laughing. It's like, how could you laugh this much? But there was laughter. And so it's like, oh, okay, I shouldn't expect it to be morbid. I shouldn't expect it to be heavy. Maybe I shouldn't expect anything. Maybe I should walk in and have all four of these Brahma Viharas humming together and then see which one is appropriate when I walk in and let my heart reverberate with what's happening and things turn quickly. So not to get stuck in any one. And if you're living with an open heart that's agile and fluid, you'll find that all four of these Brahma Viharas um, play well together. That right next to joy, there can be sorrow. And right next to sorrow, there can be joy. You will know, you, if you live long enough, you'll know that this is how it is. No joy is so great that it blocks out everything that's painful. And no pain is so great, it blocks out everything that is joyful. I've never experienced it. Peak experiences for a moment can feel only unpleasant. 
joyful experiences in the moment can only might only feel joyful but if you're actually there and intimate with life you can see it's always all there i'm hoping to give enough examples that we can take these uh concepts and, and tune into them to how we're already experiencing them because that's when we're not bringing foreign foreign ideas into us we're going we're taking these orientations and discovering them inside and learning how to cultivate them how to welcome them to be stronger and healthier and how to uh, play well together so on the hospice ward there could be a lot of laughter and then right away uh, a family could walk in and burst into tears or burst into anger and if you we're open to it and it took experience to, op to open to that great range, which is why equanimity takes a while to develop, is you have enough experience that you're not disoriented when reality turns left and right, when you see how fluid life experience is, that fluidity helps with equanimity. That fluidity can grow out of equanimity. This is how it is. It is like this. We're gonna have a chance for some uh, questions if you have them. But this is just an intro to these four Brahma Viharas. We'll be talking about them throughout the retreat. Again, trying to draw up what equanimity is and how it can be a caring state. I'll just say two more things about equanimity. One is I found that uh, sometimes equanimity Yeah, somehow I just went on mute. I'm unmuted. <laughs> so another example, my father is aging and he's suffering in his aging. And unconsciously, we both have this unconscious pull to wish he wasn't aging. That's not how I want to be with him when he ages. I want to be there with him. I don't want him to feel lonely when he's aging. And yet there is this unexamined preference that he not suffer in his aging. And that makes it harder for both of us to be there with his actual aging. And his actual aging does have hardship, but it also has fun in it and it also has beauty. So I just have to be careful of how my preferences pull me out of true intimacy. And sometimes it's equanimity that comes in and says, this is how it is. This is real aging, and I actually want to be connected here. So sometimes equanimity is actually the way I can be intimate with reality and have my heart touch reality by softening or letting go of my preferences so I can really touch what's happening. And then once you touch what's happening, you can let your preferences come back in and see if there's something you can do to improve, to improve upon difficult experiences or to celebrate what's beautiful. So we don't only have to just live in equanimity, but we do have to discover it and learn how to cultivate healthy equanimity. And the way we do that is by practicing mindfulness and also every now and then bringing forward this quality of equanimity. And a very helpful phrase is, this is how it is. It is like this. 
And sometimes you have to add the words right now, just so it doesn't feel like you don't care about the future. But it is helpful to say this moment actually is like this. This moment actually is like this. So that the intimacy of mindfulness really touches reality as opposed to having some conscious or unconscious judgment that has you not uh, touch what's happening. Try to pull for what you'd rather be happening. So with uh, that much shared um, as a starter place to talk about these four Brahma Viharas and how we're gonna be practicing this week with mindfulness, with equanimity and blending the two and keeping the other Brahma Viharas nearby so if compassion makes sense, we can practice compassion. If celebration and joy makes sense, we can practice that. But then coming back and resting in this steady flow of mindful equanimity and discovering when is our heart closed and when is it open? And can we feel that open-hearted equanimity? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.